This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 15, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Lulu Chen talks about building a cargo-sorting molecular robot. Bill Douthit joins us to discuss this week's cover photo of the world's smallest neutrino detector. And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. We love having great advertisers support our show. But in order to continue doing that, we need your help. Please go to podsurvey.com slash science dash mag and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better. That way we can show advertisers who exactly is listening to our show. Even if you've taken our podcast listener survey before, the current one is new and different. So please do take it even if you've done it before. Plus, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash science dash mag. That's podsurvey.com slash S-C-I-E-N-C hyphen M-A-G. Thanks for your help. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Sarah. Okay. First up, we have a story on gut microbes and multiple sclerosis. Uh, Multiple sclerosis, or MS, is an autoimmune disease that affects 2.5 million people around the world. Those with this disease lose the coating on nerves, which progressively disrupts signaling in the brain and the body. Okay, Dave. 
That's the brain part. What about the microbe part? What do we know about the role that our gut microbiome might play in multiple sclerosis? Well, you know, Sarah, we've talked about the microbiome a lot on this podcast. It's been linked to everything from rheumatoid arthritis to eye diseases to even potentially changes in behavior, weight loss, weight gain. So we know the gut microbiome is really important. And here is just another example of what kind of impact it could be having on the body. The latest news here comes from two papers, one where they look at the relative abundance of different gut microbes in a few groups of people. And then they take those microbes and put them in a dish and experiment on them. And they put them in mice. Anyway, what did they find when they looked at these groups of people? Right. They looked at about 70 people with multiple sclerosis, 70 people without, aged about 19 to 71. And they found that there was two types of bacteria that were far more predominant in the people with MS. Uh, One was called acinobacteria, and the other one was called acromancia. And what they found is when they exposed what are called naive immune cells, these are immune cells which really haven't decided what they want to be when they grow up. Um, When they gave these to these immune cells, they became a particular type of T helper cell. And these types of cells trigger inflammation, help the immune system kill off invaders or infected cells. But what was even more interesting is when they gave these bacteria to mice, within 20 days, the mice that received the gut bacteria from the MS people developed severe brain inflammation. And that wasn't seen nearly as much when the mice got bacteria, when they got gut bacteria from people without MS. And I think we should also touch on the other study, which looked at twins, you know, identical twins, same genetic background, but some have MS and some don't. Was there a difference in the abundance there? Right, exactly. And what the, the team found in this study was that twins, the twin that did have MS, had slightly but significantly more of this acromancia bacteria in their guts than twins that did not have MS. So going back to the mice here for a second, what we see is an actual effect on the brain. And this does sound like a step forward, you know, a way to understand how MS works, but can these findings be used therapeutically? Well, the first caveat is that both these studies, we're dealing with a pretty small number of people, just a few dozen people in each study. So hard to make big extrapolations when you've got a small sample size like that. Also, you know, this has just really been shown that the farthest they've gotten right now is mice. Obviously, we'd like to see more evidence that these are actually playing a role in people. But what the scientists say is that you know, one of the big one of the big frustrations with MS is not just that we can't cure it, but we don't really even know how it works and what causes it in the first place. And this may be shedding some light on that. Now we have a story on fire starters. One of the many disasters happening in the U.S. right now is an enormous conflagration of wildfires choking the West Coast. It's more than six hundred and sixty thousand hectares total at this point. And 13,000 of those in Oregon. And that's thought to have been started by teens with firecrackers. So Dave, is it always people's fault when we see these huge wildfires? Can we blame lightning? Well, it turns out most of the time it is our fault. In fact, a new study suggests that 84% of the time it's people that are starting these wildfires. And in places like California, the coastal Northwest, people are behind more than 90% of wildfires. Okay, but there is such a thing as fire season. Is that just forests getting more dry and people being there? Or is there something natural about those cycles? Well, there is a natural fire cycle with the fire season with things like lightning, but people are really extending these fire seasons because we are causing so many fires. What are humans doing to start the fires? Where do we, what do we know are some of the big causes and how do we get this data? 
So the really interesting thing is where the data came from because it actually came from a stash of government records that contain information about the cause of wildfires going back all the way to 1992. And the researchers who were looking into it had over a million and a half records to look through. Now, here's some of the really interesting statistics that came out of that. The biggest cause of wildfires caused by people, about 25% of them were caused by the burning of trash and debris. Another quarter, the cause is unknown. But then after that, you've got arson, campfires, children, smokers. And what was kind of surprising is fireworks actually didn't rank very highly except for on one day of the year. Can you guess what day that was? The 4th of July. Exactly. And so, but but interestingly, fireworks are not a major cause except for on that one day. And in fact, over 7,000 events uh, were started on July 4th uh, for the years that the researchers looked at. So this is one disaster that we're not really going to be able to hang on climate change, at least for now. Um, but what do experts recommend people do to stop causing so many fires. Well, one of the really interesting recommendations that comes out of this story is actually that we shouldn't necessarily try to stop fires. I mean, we should be trying to mitigate and stop man-made fires, but fire isn't necessarily a bad thing. Fire, we've been, you know, as one of the authors says, we've been trying to stop fires for 100 years and we haven't had very much success. And fire can be very important for reshaping landscape. What we should be doing, according to this researcher, is doing much more controlled fires, controlled burns, where we can be very predictive about where fire is going to be, be on the scene to control it, and that in and of itself may prevent other fires, man-made fires, from whether they start or whether they spread. It could mitigate some of the damage from those types of fires. Last up, we have a story on a new record in quantum computing. While quantum computing is still in its infancy, the hope is they'll someday take over where current computers tend to break down. And modeling complex molecular interactions is one example of that. Now, a quantum computer has taken a step in that direction. What did it do, Dave? Well, this quantum computer modeled beryllium hydride, which is not a very big molecule. It's just two hydrogen atoms tacked onto a single beryllium atom. But it is the largest molecule that a quantum computer has ever simulated before. As I mentioned, the hope is that quantum computers will one day take over where conventionals break down in this area. I mean, we can model some things right now with conventional computers, but why might quantum computers be better at this in the future? Today's most powerful supercomputers can actually simulate molecules up to a few hundred atoms, which is a lot bigger than the three-atom molecule we're talking about here. But these simulations are basically going to hit a brick wall because the amount of computing power required is so enormous. So first of all, you need a ton of computing power, but also you start to worry about things like accuracy. um, And especially when people are interested in using these models for maybe developing drugs, accuracy is really important. And so the idea is if quantum computers can be perfected in the near future, they are going to really outpace what supercomputers are able to do. All right, Dave. So what's the holdup? Just Give us one or two reasons. <laughs> I know there are a lot of reasons we don't have quantum computers right now. Well, quantum computers are still in their early stages. The, even this particular quantum computer did not produce 100% perfectly accurate results. So there's still some work to be done on that. Um, also, 
You know, we're t- when we're talking about drug discovery, when we're talking about compounds we're really interested in, these are compounds that contain 50 to 80 atoms, which is a lot more than the three-atom molecule we're dealing with here. As one expert uh, we talked to for the story said, it's sort of like right now, it's like sort of like we're shooting for the moon, and right now we've sort of seen an airplane fly. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how artificial intelligence is becoming better at guessing your passwords. Not necessarily good news. Also, we are going to do a hopefully fun wrap-up of this year's Ig Nobel Prize ceremony. This is a yearly ceremony where prizes are awarded for the wackiest and sometimes funniest and sometimes just craziest discoveries in science for the year. For Science Insider, we've got a story about the National Institutes of Health quietly shutting down its funding for gun research. Also a story about whether fake social media bots might influence the upcoming German election. And finally, in honor of Cassini crashing into Saturn at the end of this week, we've got a very cool, very fun interactive, the solar system graveyard. You can see where all of our various space probes and spacecraft have crashed over the past few decades and got a lot of really interesting and fun information about all of those missions. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crosby. This week's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal subscription service that lets you enjoy cooking without the hassle of lugging groceries or that horrible feeling of shame when you throw out a bunch of ingredients that have been sitting in your fridge for way too long. Yep, that is a personal experience and a personal pet peeve. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take about 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks. The site is so easy to navigate and has lots of options for amounts and delivery and even a vegetarian option if you are not an omnivore. HelloFresh delivers food to your doorstep in a recyclable, insulated box for free. They are now offering light fall meals, and they've just introduced breakfast options. With their variety of fresh ingredients, HelloFresh lets you try new foods and even new techniques without having to spend your entire evening cooking at less than $10 a meal. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter code MAGAZINE30 when you subscribe. That's code MAGAZINE30, M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E-3-0. So subscribe today and get cooking with HelloFresh. Today, we have a special guest on the podcast, Bill Douthit, photography manager in our design department. He wrote a cover story this week, which is a little peek into how the issue's cover got made. Welcome, Bill. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. For those who haven't seen it yet, what is on the cover this week? The cover is a really cool device. It looks almost Victorian, although it's extremely modern in its function. It detects neutrinos, tiny little subatomic particles that can zip through matter as if it's not there. It kind of looks like an hourglass or an old-timey lantern. It it does. It's It's got uh, copper, this beautiful copper finish. It's got silvery kind of reflective surfaces. It's got lead around it that's salvaged from an 18th century Spanish galleon. It has a Victorian feel to it. It's just amazing looking. And it is, uh, according to I read in the research or one of the insight on it, the 
world's smallest neutrino detector, which is pretty amazing. I've read a lot of cover stories that we've published, and they seem to always be a little bit of a journey. So why don't you walk us through, start to finish, how this all came about? This started with a picture of a couple of guys holding a a version, not the same one that we used uh, on the cover this week, but it was a version of one of these detectors. And I was intrigued by it for all these reasons. Of the, <laughs> I'm, I'm attracted to shiny objects. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, maybe we could do something with this. Right. But- of course, the first photo is never the final photo. Never. Uh, it's it's always a process of refinement, really. It is a journey, as you said. What I did here was I reached out to the researcher and said, I, I love this detector. You know, is it possible to have a photographer come down and make some pictures of it that we might use for the cover? And he explained, well, not this one because it's behind several tons of lead right now and we're in the middle of tests. But there's a prototype the original one. And that's the little one that we ended up photographing. And who ended up actually taking the picture? Well, the woman who ended up taking the picture is Jean Lachat. She's the University of Chicago's photographer. She typically doesn't do things like this, which was a very carefully managed studio lighting job. Let's talk a little bit about the lighting. As you mentioned, there's a lot of reflective surfaces, metal, glass, and it proved pretty difficult to take a photo with the right emphasis. It was it that was certainly the challenging thing. They um when we decided we would do this, what they did was they Juan Collar and uh, Jean brought the detector into the studio and did just a basic picture of it and by basic they put it against a seamless background, put a soft light on it just to get a nice high resolution copy of it and they sent that to me. And I saw right away we were going to have a lot of problems because as beautiful as the thing is, what makes it beautiful is all these shiny reflective surfaces which generate all sorts of unwanted lights and highlights and things that all have to be controlled. So it was a process of how would we control this. In the story that you wrote, you can see the very first picture, this kind of middle picture, and then the end result. And I think in the middle one, you can see a reflection of the photographer in it. You know there's work to be done when that's happening. After trying this once or twice, I realized we weren't going to get to the kind of drama that we needed because when you're doing still lifes like this, whether it's a neutrino detector or some flowers or uh, food, whatever it may be, you're controlling the light very carefully. It's all about subtle little variations that you do that direct the interest of the viewer to whatever it is that's most important. It's about eliminating the things that you don't want attention to and emphasizing the things where you do want attention. Because even though it may be the shiniest, it may not be the most important aspect of what you're looking at. How did you end up controlling the light? Well, at least how did the photographer and the team working on this do that? Well, this was really bizarre. There's an older technique that I think started in the 90s and then fell out of favor like all things come and go called um, light painting. It uses a fiber optic cable with a very carefully controlled little source of light. And what you do is you turn out all the lights in the studio And you'll do what you call your background exposure, whatever the background is, so that you make that exposure first and the object itself is just silhouetted in black. Then you turn the lights, all the lights go out again, but the shutter is open and you use this little light hose to very carefully paint in the areas that you want. By doing that, you can control the reflections because you just put the light exactly where you want it and you're just painting in the object a bit at a time. 
And I suggested this to them, and to my surprise, Juan knew not only knew of this technique, but he actually had one of the light hoses, which was really not what you'd expect a physicist to own in his equipment shop. <laughs> so how many people and how many hours did this take? Uh, <laughs> billions and billions. <laughs> oh, no. uh, uh, so it was really a team effort, and it was really tough to do because each one, each photograph, each exposure would be created individually because they'd be painting all these things in. And so we couldn't always replicate exactly what happened from shoot to shoot. Here's my hardball question, Bill. Okay. okay. Couldn't you just tone down the highlights you didn't like in Photoshop? Well, we use Photoshop very conservatively here. We don't actually make things up in Photoshop. We use Photoshop to control and to calibrate the color properly. But highlights, you actually have to kind of have them there in the first place. You can tone things down or bring up things a little bit. But to give these kinds of very subtle gradations that bring out the textures of the lead or the copper or the shiny metallic surfaces, the light has to be there and properly positioned in the first place. So while Photoshop does a lot of wonderful things, that's a little outside of its range for this. So we had to actually have it right in the photograph itself. Very cool. Okay. One thing I want to touch on before we wrap up is the lead content. Um, you mentioned that it came from a very old ship. Yes. Why? Well, because and this is one of the things Juan and I bonded over. We both had experiences with radiation exposure in <laughs> earlier in our careers. And um, you have to use, for these very carefully calibrated devices, you have to use something that's been forged and formed before 1945, which was when the first atmospheric nuclear explosions took place, because you want something that is completely free of any possible residual radiation, no matter how tiny, and it is very tiny, uh, might be present in the air that would somehow get caught in one of these metal forgings. Okay. Thanks so much, Bill. Thank you. Bill Douthat is the managing photo editor for Science. He writes about photographing the smallest neutrino detector this week in the magazine. Generally, when people think of cargo sorting robots, they think about something like the power loader that Ripley drove in the movie Aliens. But researchers have developed a robot that's on a whole other scale. I'm Andrew Wagner, and joining me today to discuss molecular robotics and the work her group just published on them is Lulu Chen. Welcome, Lulu. Hi, Andrew. So to start off, just what is a molecular robot? Well, if you actually ask different researchers, you will probably get different answers for that question because molecular robotics is a fairly new research area and thus the concept is not yet very well defined. So one way to think about it is to first to think about the natural molecular components in biological organisms. And many of these molecules can be viewed as machines that perform mechanical tasks. And inspired by these natural molecular machines, we wanted to design and build artificial molecular machines that have similar capabilities but allow their functions to be programmed by humans. So we call them molecular robots because they're programmable and they can autonomously perform mechanical tasks at the nanometer scale, similar to what electromechanical robots can do at the macroscopic scale. For example, like a Roomba that goes around your household and collects dust and small trash. So 
you know, while the Roomba goes around collecting dust and trash, your microscopic robot sorts cargo. Molecular cargo is what you call it in the in the paper. What is this cargo, and, and how can the robot tell the difference between different pieces of cargo? Uh, we used two fluorescent dyes. One is um, colored yellow, and another is colored pink as two types of molecular cargos because the fluorescent molecule allowed us to monitor if the cargo ended up at the desired locations. However, in principle, a cargo could be any molecule that is chemically linked to a DNA strand. For example, it could be a protein, a small chemical, or a metal nanoparticle. And if we were to design a macroscopic robot to sort cargos, we'd probably build a memory into the robot so it can tell the difference between different types of cargos. But building a memory into a single molecule is hard, especially if we want the robot to be able to sort many different types of cargos. So instead, we designed a DNA robot without a memory, and it walks around a molecular-scale testing ground to search for cargo molecules, and it picks up a molecular cargo of any type, and then keep walking around until it bumps into a drop-off location. And then we designed specific drop-off locations for each type of cargo. That means if the type matches, then the drop-off location will signal the robot to release the cargo. Otherwise, the robot will just continue to walk around and search for another drop-off location. So getting the robots to do what you want them to do in this microscopic scale sounds pretty difficult. Um, Were there any major difficulties in creating this robot? Yeah, uh, there were actually a lot of difficulties we encountered. So we can program the behavior of the robots because we use chemically synthesized DNA molecules to make the robot. So DNA is a very good engineering material in the sense that many of its chemical and physical properties are well understood. For example, here are some simple facts. A single strand of DNA is made of four types of molecules called nucleotides. And then the nucleotides can be arranged in a string called a sequence. So if the sequences of two single strands are complementary to each other, which means the nucleotides form specific pairs, so A pairs with T and C pairs with G, and then the two strands will be able to zip up together into a double helix shape. And let's also think about the programmability. And because the specific nucleotides of a functional components can be arranged together in different ways, it will be possible to reprogram the robot to perform different tasks. For example, you could add more hands and arms. That would allow the robot to carry multiple cargos at the same time. So that's the basic principles that allowed us to so-called program the robot behavior. And talking about the difficulties. So we initially thought, well, we had a very simple robot design, so it just ought to work, but it didn't. And the project was actually started when when I was a postdoc, working with a few colleagues and a team of undergraduates as a summer research project. And we got some promising initial results that indicated the robot was able to take a few steps. But how quickly it was able to reach a specific distance did not make any sense. So we basically got stuck until I started my faculty position at Caltech and Anupama Subagir joined my lab as a graduate student. So she managed to solve many puzzles for why the robot behaved differently than what we expected. And one example is that uh, she figured out the testing ground that we initially built for the robot was 
actually not like a flat land, but more like a wavy ocean. So the fluctuation of the testing ground itself prevented us from getting the robot to walk around as designed. But once the problem was identified, we redesigned a more rigid molecular testing ground, and that allowed us to further study the robot's behavior with better control. And that's just one of the many examples that I could give you about the difficulties that we encountered. So, what possible applications does this robot have? Could we use it for medicine or engineering? You know, what do you think is places where we'll see this kind of DNA-based robot? Yeah. So, I first want to say that my lab does not develop DNA robots for any specific applications, and our interest is in understanding the engineering principles for building general-purpose DNA robots. And the cargo-sewing DNA robot is just one of the first steps towards developing the building blocks to make robots that could perform many. Different tasks, but I do hope that once we have the capability to design and build a variety of DNA robots that can process information and perform mechanical tasks at the nanometer scale, then other researchers could use these robots for many exciting applications. So, just to give you a few examples, researchers have been interested in using DNA robots for synthesizing complex chemicals、uh, in an artificial molecular factory. The robots would pick up individual components of a target molecule and assemble them together in the right order, and that could eventually become an efficient way to synthesize new kinds of chemicals that are currently difficult to make, including therapeutic chemicals. And there are many difficulties that need to be overcome for practical medical application, but researchers have also been trying to make it possible for a DNA robot to deliver a drug molecule only when a specific disease signal is present, for example, on the surface of a cell. And another possible area of applications is、uh, in material science. Because the property of many materials depends on how the individual molecular components are positioned relative to each other,、uh, so this is of course still science fiction. But it is conceivable that in the future, DNA robots could be used to rearrange these molecular components and change the property of a material if they sense a specific signal from the environment. So these will become so-called smart materials. There are a lot of things looking forward there. But what are the next steps for your research? Looking forward,、um, we like to develop more building blocks for DNA robots to perform more diverse functions. For example, we're interested in designing a pheromone-like signal that the robots can leave behind and mark where they have been, so they can be programmed to find the direct path between two locations. Similar to how ants find direct path between nest and food, and that way the robot will be able to transport cargo molecules more efficiently. We're also interested in adding simple communication between robots, so they can cooperatively perform more complex tasks, sort of like a swarm. Lulu, thanks for talking with me today. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It was great to share the story with your audience. Lulu Chen, Anupama Thubiger, and colleagues write about a DNA sorting molecular robot. In this week's issue of Science, and that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast@aaas.org, or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.